0: I happen to believe that it is a big deal for people to go to church (laughs) and to be part of a faith community.
1: This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief.
2: On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today, I'm speaking in good faith with Pastor Scott McKinney. He is at the Centerpoint Church in Orem, Utah. Pastor Scott, thank you so much for coming in today.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: You know, it's so interesting to me to get to talk to people of all different faiths and find so much spiritually in common with people who have really sought for the divine in their life. And I wonder if you just sort of walk us through your experience. I understand you moved all over in the Air Force.
0: Yeah, my dad was uh, in the Air Force, and I was actually born in Bermuda. And we we moved from place to place and ended up in, in California, but came from a very strong Air Force family. I was the youngest of four boys, and my dad was all about – he had some real well-defined goals for us. I would say we were all about uh, – faith family football, but I'm not sure that it was in that (laughs) order. I think usually football came first, but uh, I think he had a, my dad had a goal for us and he wanted to see all of us attend a service academy and also wanted to see us play college football. And uh, I was the youngest of four and I had, uh, my oldest brother went to the Air Force Academy and then the next two were at the, went to the Naval Academy and I was the fourth. And I ended up going to the Naval Academy, uh, and that really was you kind know, where my faith journey—you know, my you know real getting serious about my faith began—is my plebe year, and I think I added a fourth F, which was failure. <laughs> I had a I had a rough time, and you know was injured, and you know football, and uh, academically I had a I had a rough time. It was a very much a math science curriculum, and. I like to say I had a 3.0 grade point average if you had both semesters together. And But it was, uh, it was a uh, – I had a rough go of it. But I, I think, you know, in the middle of that year, I came to a point where I just – I would say a, a time of surrender mm-hmm. in my own life where I – all of my efforts to be this fine young man that I thought I was and, you know, to – meet my dad's expectations and, you know, my brother's expectations, you know, all of that kind of uh, fell, just became so empty for me. And I just became aware of my own fallen, sinful nature and uh, just uh, January of, of my plebe year, I... I'll never forget where I was. I was in a in a classroom at the Naval Academy, and I just I said to God, "I hate my life, and you can have it. You can take it. And if you got anything for me, I want it." At that moment of surrender, I came to a point of I was flooded with joy and peace and purpose. But most of all, I knew that I was loved by the God of the universe. And I knew that because of what Jesus had done for me on the cross and uh, his great sacrifice for my sin. And he took my sin and my death and my shame, and he gave me his righteousness and peace and forgiveness and, and life, eternal life. And so life turned at that moment for me, and everything changed. I went ahead and finished my first year at the academy and finished my plebe year. And I realized I didn't want to be in the Navy. And I uh, I ended up leaving the academy. And I remember saying at that time, Lord, I will do anything you want me to do except be a pastor. I had no desire to be a pastor, and but I graduated from college, went to seminary, which in uh, which is a three-year master's degree, master's of divinity. and That's I did, a
2: pretty dangerous thing to do if you don't yeah, want to be a pastor. I,
0: to, to say I don't want to be a pastor. <laughs> but I, I ended up going to seminary, and I, I realized somewhere along the line in seminary, everybody here wants to be a pastor except me. And I, I always joke that there was a class that you were supposed to take your last year on how to conduct funerals and weddings. And uh, well, I went to the dean and said, hey, you all know that I'm not going to be a pastor, so... Can I take another class? And he says, "Well, we we know you're not going to be a pastor. We're we're going to spare the church." <laughs> so I, you know, I, he let me take another class, and 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 I ended up graduating. And then I, I actually was a, a school administrator and a football coach for seven years, and ended up, you know, after seven years of doing that, I. I just woke up one day and I said, oh, no. And I, I said, I am a pastor. And I just after seven years of doing that, I just became aware that a lot of the things that pastors do, it's, you know, shepherd people and lead and uh, speak. And, you know, that I that's just what – that's who I was. And so I basically – we had three kids at the time, and we kind of jumped off the cliff and just said, okay, let's let's do this, and became an associate pastor of a church in uh, in Cyprus, California, and then three years later, ended up coming up here to Utah, to Orem.
2: I'd love to go back to two or three moments in, okay, in that, sure. that amazing story. That moment in that classroom that you mm-hmm. talked about, it seems to me, and you can tell me what you think about this, that that would not really have been possible at that point without... Everything that had gone into your life right. up to that. Just sort of getting the information and, and knowing from going to church yeah. to have something to grasp onto, I guess, when the moment came.
0: Right. Well, I had been you know, I'd gone to church every Sunday my whole life. You know, my dad would wrap his knuckles on the door and wake us up when we went whether we wanted to or not. And, but we were there. And I would say that there were some things, there was some information that I, you know, that I gathered along the way. And the other thing that, that was going on in the early 70s in Southern California where we were, I'm from Rialto, California, the Jesus movement had taken place. I don't believe enough has been written. I don't believe enough has been understood at this point about the impact of that on our culture. I know it impacted kind of the spiritual state of affairs in Southern California. I think it, you know, my family is... From the south, uh, and I, I think it had an impact there. I, I don't know about it as much about other parts of the country, but it was a, it was an amazing movement, and, and I, I'd gathered some things from church, but also just there was there was this thing going on that I I had become clear. I'd gotten clear on the gospel, you know, and and uh, you know I described myself as an evangelical Christian, which is. You know, we believe that salvation is by faith alone, and it's in Christ alone, and we know that by the Bible alone. And those things became – I understood that. I got that. But I think what happened at the Naval Academy for me – and as I look back, I'm so grateful for my time there, and there's nothing wrong with the institution. There was something (laughs) wrong with me. But I I think what I – it needed to take that eight-inch or however far-inch journey that is from my head to my heart. Mm. That's what happened, you know. It was, you know, in that moment of surrender. It's like I Pascal talked about this God-shaped vacuum that's inside each of us, and you know, there's there this emptiness that, that's inside all of us that we that needs to be filled, and that's the place that God has created for Himself. And we're fallen people, and whatever, you know, because of sin, and you know, I we, I believe we're we're separated from God, and but God, He longs for us, and He. He loved us so much that he sent his son. And and now that place in our hearts can be filled by his spirit. So, And we I, feel that void. Yeah, I think it, it is, it's in every human being. And, you know, and I preached every Sunday for the last 30 years, 29 years. And, you know, there are times you realize that you're connecting with people. But when you start talking about that emptiness and that void, it, it's something that I think every human being uh, has a sense of.
2: From the time of that prayer and you feeling that God had heard you, mm-hmm. it didn't seem like He revealed a life plan to you. You just had some confidence that He was there for you.
0: Yeah, and I felt I felt like there was a reason. Before that, I didn't have a purpose, and all of a sudden, I had a purpose, even though I didn't know. That I would end up here in this place, pastoring this church, but I, you know, I, I knew that God had a, a plan and a purpose, and I, I wanted my life to matter. And I think you got to be careful what you, you know. I I think sometimes the thing that we're resisting the most is probably the thing that may, maybe it's the thing that we're meant to do. I don't know, but I was I was fighting against that. Mm-hmm. I just didn't like I didn't like the the way that culture, society, just to, my impressions of pastors was you know, I thought I was pretty cool, actually. And, I, and they just, pastors didn't seem all that hip to me. And you, I, you probably were pretty cool. I, I, well, yeah, not until I, <laughs> yeah, maybe being a pastor is God's way of saying, tone it down. You know, but I, I just, I didn't like the image or whatever. But then, you know, you get over that and you just, you grow up enough, you just be yourself, whatever you are.
2: Between now and then and all your life experience, are there things that you feel differently about or, or have learned that you didn't know then?
0: Hmm. That's a great question. I think a lot of life just comes down to you you find something worth doing and then you keep showing up. Hmm. And I think in my marriage, you know, if my as a dad, uh, as a pastor of this church, I just have always felt like what we were doing here mattered. And so I just decided I was going to keep showing up. I've shown up for so long that I don't know what else I would do, but it, but it's just uh, this is in, in one way I don't feel like I was called to be a uh, pastor in general. I feel like more I was called to be the pastor of this particular church. I just mm. I have a love affair with the people of this church. I just I think they're wonderful, great people, and I'm just I'm grateful grateful to be able to be in the same place for as long as we've been.
2: That leads to one of my next questions, which is what in your religious life brings you joy? And it sounds like you've started oh, to answer that.
0: Well, it, it's it's the it's the people. It's the, you know, when, when you work with people, the highs are highs and the lows are low. Hmm. And you, you know, the very people that you love the most are sometimes going to be the people that disappoint you. And I am sure that I have been a disappointment to them at times. You know, you can't it goes both ways, but it's it's when you see lives change and that the good news of Jesus Christ really matters, that it that it transforms lives, that you see people that go from hopelessness and despair to faith, hope, love. I mean it's just I think it makes all you know, it, it's the good news. It really is. It's it's the you know, the gospel is is truly all of that.
2: Just on a daily basis or a weekly basis, whatever it is for you, what are the things that that you think I need to do this to be in touch with God's Spirit?
0: I'm one of the things that I'm grateful that I get to do is I, you know, I preach and you know we are uh, what we our authority is the Bible and so we teach from the Bible and that puts me in a place where every day I am in the written Word of God and I think it uh, I, I think it transforms. I think it makes. A, not only transforms, but it's just I think God speaks. His truth becomes real, you know, as we interact with it and as we apply it to our lives. And it, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired and is profitable for training and correction and righteousness. And, you know, I, I, I believe that. So the Bible, I think, you know, prayer, I went to school before ADD was a thing, but I'm pretty sure I had it, and so wow. that makes prayer a little bit difficult for somebody <laughs> like me. But I would say that you know, it, it, God just puts you in places in, in your life where you don't have any. I just you know, the, the longer I go, the, re- the less I'm in control of you know. But and do you find yourself being okay with that? Yeah, I mean, it's like it, it's like, it's because your experiences is my experiences. When I've tried to control things and you know, like orchestrate and manipulate and whatever. You know, I mean, it always goes wrong. I think it's important to have a vision and have a, a clear purpose. But at the same time, you know, it is you get to the point where you don't know where else to go. And, and just to be able to, to know, God, you're in control of this. this is, you're in this. And, and, and it's amazing how much better it works out when, that when it's his plan and not mine.
2: How is teaching your beliefs to your own children different than teaching them to a congregation?
0: well you have you just my kids are so much closer to me mm-hmm. and they it would probably be a little bit easier the further away from me or a pastor the you know the further away you are from that person it might be easy to idealize that person. But I think, you know, your children are going to know you. And uh, my kids are probably going to see more than anybody that that I have not always lived what I've – Taught, they're going to see that there is a. We're all hypocrites. I mean, nobody is completely consistent between what they say and what they do. And and I look at it and I go, I get up and preach, and there's a lot of things that I say that I'm a fellow struggler, and I'm not there yet. My kids have probably been in a better situation to see that Hmm. than anybody. But with my own kids, what I've tried to do is just try to be as. You know, just be as honest as you can with them and say, mm. dad, is, dad is fallible and he's failed here. And to be able to go to your kids and say, I am so sorry. You know, I think that's made a lot of difference in my kids' lives. I hope it has, you know, but it's, uh, I think when you're a pastor though, and you're People kind of want to put you on a pedestal. That's a dangerous place to be because when you're on a pedestal, people are, you know, you can get knocked off mm. and it, that can be painful. I've had that happen a few times and it's not fun, but it uh, keeps you humble, you know.
2: Kids are good for that, for yeah. sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: <laughs> Did you always feel comfortable speaking of God publicly like you do now? What changed if you weren't?
0: I. Would never have, uh, you know, in high school, you know, I'd I'd, no, I would never have stood up. Uh, I think the tradition that I grew up in, there weren't a lot of opportunities just to stand up and speak. I remember getting asked when I was a senior in college to speak at a high school graduation little uh, for the kids at the church we were going to. And, you know, I had somebody say, You made sense. And, you know, kind of like, Really, I—that you know, <laughs> was the first time anybody had ever, you know, said, "Hey, that was good." You know, you you, you communicated well, and and I so I just kind of shrugged my shoulder because I didn't I didn't really think about at that point I wasn't moving towards being a pastor. But when I started to teach, when I was uh, administrator to a school, a football coach, at the end of every practice, a, a high school football coach always has the opportunity to. Give a little speech, mm-hmm. and I, and I like doing that. I was, a, it was, a, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed gathering the team around and casting vision, and you know, I realized that communication in that way was a way that I could lead, and that's kind of one of the things that led me into being a pastor. And real, you know, I said I feel like I can communicate, but I go back and I listen to some of the early messages that I, you know I preached at this church. I got to tell you, I, you know, I don't know how people – when we first got to this church, they were the average – I mean, we, we probably had 25, 30 people in the church, and the average age was 70, and I felt like the moment I opened my mouth, I was putting them to sleep. I, it was, <laughs> I'd look out, and they were all asleep, and I, I said, Whoa, this is – maybe I ought to figure out another line of work here. But I think you grow. The more you do it, mm. you grow.
2: What do you think that congregations of faith – what do they add to a community
0: hmm. i happen to believe that it is a big deal for people to go to church hmm. and to be part of a faith community and i think when people well i'll say this we all know where we live you know we live in a in a completely unique area here i don't know what the percentages are but this is an area that is dominated uh, by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then, but you have a group of people out there that uh, that aren't that don't belong, that aren't part of that, and just having a place in this valley where people have that sense of belonging, I don't think it's a good thing in a community to have people that constantly feel like they're on the outside. What I have experienced at Centerpoint Church is you know just real family. I mean, we you know and and there's a there's a profound sense of that in my life and in the lives of the people. In our church, and I, I just, where would people be without that? And I mean, there's all sorts of things that I think the church does in the community, and we serve, and we, you know, we want to be, we want to be a blessing to this community. We want our people to wherever they work, wherever they live, to be involved. And you know, Jeremiah 29 is a 11 is a is a passage that I think means a lot to us as a church. It's about the children of Israel are in captivity. They're living in a place where they don't belong, feel like they belong. And I think a lot of people that are not LDS come to Utah County and they kind of feel like, well, hey, I I don't belong here. But the prophet Jeremiah tells the children of Israel to go and be a blessing to the city and plant gardens and marry off your sons and daughters and pray for the city that it would prosper. Because if it prospers, you will prosper. And that's our attitude about being here in Utah.
2: It's interesting that because religion and your relationship with God is so personal, but it seems like you can't really live it on your own. You need other people.
0: Oh, you you know, this is one of the things that I will say that it just concerns me about our particular tribe. You know, uh, I I think in evangelicalism, there's a lot of people that want to talk about their own personal relationship with Jesus. But I don't think that the New Testament— would understand that kind of faith. It, it's just where it's just vertical, you know, mm. just me and Jesus. And it's meant to be lived out in community. It's horizontal. You know, if you love me, keep my commandments. and This is my commandment, that you love one another. Jesus continually points And everything to else another. hangs off of that. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely.
2: You've talked about this a little bit, but have you ever had difficulties or things made harder in your life because you were a
0: believer? Well, I think any time you're – any time that – you have, uh, you know, I went through a year in 1996. My brother, Keith, uh, developed pancreatic cancer. We found out about that in, uh, you know, that was, I think, April of 96. And then, you know, pancreatic cancer is a, it's a death sentence. Hmm. And then six months later, my wife, you know, she's diagnosed with breast cancer and extremely serious. Hmm. So, you know, within a year, my brother dies and my wife, you know, they, she's, she's a miracle, you know, but that she's still here. And she's, uh, I think the Lord has healed her and used medicine to do that. But I would say, you know, if you're not a believer, you can look at that. And if you're real honest, and you're not a believer, you can just say, you know what, that's just the way it is. And we live in a, you know, the world is a cold, dark place. And you know, why should anybody expect anything different? Uh, but, you know, the thing when you're a Christian and when you you believe that God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And when you're going through a year like that where you just go, hey, hey it's hard to it's hard to fathom the good. It's hard. to So it, it's the problem is, is that we live in the here and now and we can't see we can't see what. The future is going to bring, and I, I've heard a great illustration. Is it is like living, living in the here and now is like looking at the backside of a tapestry, and it's ragged, and there's a lot of threads that are sort of uh, hanging out there, and you don't. It doesn't make any sense at all. And then you get on the other side, and you go, okay, now it's it's a it's a beautiful picture. It's it makes sense. But uh, it, just being a believer, believing that there's that things ought to have a purpose, and there ought to be order, and sometimes you just have to. Lord, I can't see the future. Right now, it doesn't make any sense. But I think one day when we look back, it'll it'll all make sense. Mm.
2: I like that illustration because if you're on the back, you see mostly the dark threads. Yeah, and occasional that, little light ones. Well, you,
0: obviously, you know more about tapestries than I do. I, but I, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, mm. I guess that's right. Yeah.
2: When are the times, or are there specific times when you recognized God used me? God was working through me. Yeah. in
0: my life. I think over – I would say that if I look at our church, around the year 2005, 2006, I got here in 1989. And, you know, we – you know, the church had grown from 25 people to about 500, 450, 500 people. And, you know, by all accounts, you know, it it was – you know, things had gone well and everything. But I began to feel there was a – the the church that – Needed a fresh vision that there mm. was something, and, and we um, embarked on what we called a Chapter Two vision at our church, where we we just said, you know, we're going to recommit to being a, a church that that reaches the people of Utah Valley, and we're going to we're going to. And one of the things, one of the really difficult things we decided to do, we were going to relocate, so we sold our old building, put it up for sale in two thousand six. 2007, and we bought a piece of property down the freeway. We began to plan a, a new building, and we rolled out the plans in 2008. Uh, Which was not uh, a good financial well, it year. Was, <laughs> it, in fact, Labor Day of 2008, and right before all the markets crashed and everything, and you know, just uh, everything we had planned, everything we had done, we just looked like it was a it was just a – it just looked like a complete folly. So we owned this piece of property just south of University Parkway on the freeway in Orem. And we just – it's tempting at a time like that just to say, hey, what an idiot. And, and that was a stupid mistake. And so sorry about that. But I really – we really believe that you know this is something that we were going to – supposed to relocate and build our church down there. And we just – so here's, here's the, the thing that I think has made a difference. We just kept showing up. Hmm. You know, we just said we're not going to give up. From 2006 to 2016, we held church in four different places. You know, we moved in and out of high schools uh, here in uh, in Orem. Uh, our offices were in five different places. It just felt at times like this thing. We, hmm. We're in real trouble here. This is, you know, we're not a wealthy congregation by any means. And how is this all going to happen? And That was just one of those situations where I look at it and say, well, you know, I had a plan. And uh, what's the old saying is that when you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. (laughs) But we just said, you know, we're just going to keep showing up. And the Lord made a way. And so we were able to finally start building in 2015. And we ended up being able to move into our new building in 2016. And it just made a tremendous difference for our church. And we went from a place where we were— hard to find to a place where we're impossible. to be. Everybody knows where you are. Right there on the free, you know, so, but that has been, the Lord has used that. But it's like, I I don't look at that and say, oh man, you know, what a great thing. I was, what a great plan. What a great idea. What a great vision. It's just like, looking back on it, you go, wow, I can't believe if I had known, I mean, it was, we had no idea all the obstacles that we would face, but it is like, God had a plan, and it was completely different than ours. And the end result is, you know, that we've got a new home, and it's been a wonderful thing. So, ten years though of yeah. moving in and out of high schools, we actually owned a moving van, and we, <laughs> we <were> literally moving <laughs> in and out of high schools every week. So it was, it was just crazy how how much uh, you know that, that was that was so difficult. But the, the only thing that I can say where I just feel like being here has made a difference is that just to keep showing up.
2: Hmm. Well, I'm glad you had less than 40 years in that wilderness. Yes,
0: it was. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, it felt that way sometimes. It felt that way.
2: What should I ask you that I don't know to ask?
0: I find a lot of people that live here, they find out what I do, that I'm a pastor, and it's like you're a Martian. I mean, they've, no, they've never <laughs> you know, met anybody like mm-hmm. that. And what's that like? And the thing I would want to say is that it's been a great run. I've loved Utah County. I get tired sometimes of people in Utah County about kind of the oh Happy Valley and you know woe is me and you know I I mean I love this place. I've raised four children here. I think this is one of the best places in in America to raise kids. And I think that our approach to ministry has always been we're not going to tell you what we're against. We're going to tell you who we're for, and that is. Uh, I've got a saying that I think I heard from somebody else, but make Jesus the hero of every sermon. Make it about Jesus all the time and make it about loving him and loving one another and loving your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, that's what it's all about. This is a different experience. This is a different place. There are real differences in theology and real differences in what we understand to be the gospel. But I think one of the things that I would say that we have in common with our uh, our Latter Day Saint neighbors is we all believe, you know, unto others as you would have them doing to you. And you know, the one thing I found is that you know people here love their kids, and I love their kids. And I just to be able to to find common cause with, I get so excited. I you know I have two sons-in-law that are head high school football coaches. Aaron Beam is at American Fork, and you know John Lehman is at Sky Ridge, and you know, my, uh, one, Aaron's married to my oldest daughter, and John's married to my youngest daughter. But it's just to be able to be on the sidelines on Friday nights and just know, hey, we're all—we're for these kids. And it's a great thing. And to be part of the community, my wife and I have just—we've loved it. You know, it's been, a, it's been a great thing.
2: Pastor Scott McKinney, thank you for speaking today in good faith.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear from the worship leader and the musicians of Centerpoint Church, and we'll hear a panel of listeners discuss the ideas presented by our guest, Pastor Scott McKinney. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief.
3: Come on, church. Can you clap with me? Come on. Let's shake heaven and earth with our praise. Come on. Your love is like radiant diamonds.
2: An important part of worship at Centerpoint Church is worship music, involving a congregation that way. So, I had to call Brenton Laidler. He is the associate pastor and worship leader. You're the music guy. Yep. Yeah. So were you always into music for the worship end of it or did you come at it from some other musical way?
3: No, I was in um, a lot of bands. I wasn't a believer. So I was in bands and I had you know, I was a lead singer in, in a rock band throughout high school and then and then even afterwards. Uh, and then when I gave my life to Christ, I had this passion still for music. And my girlfriend, who became my wife, was was involved in the praise team, and so she's like, "Hey, you can play guitar. Why don't you just, you know, come join us and, and be a part of that worship?" And really, worship music was kind of a main reason that I was saved. That Jesus got a hold of me uh, was just hearing these powerful lyrics and kind of opening my heart to what God was was trying to say to me. And then from then on, I just got hooked, and I got more and more experience, and more and more people just encouraging me and, and building me up, and kind of teaching me behind the scenes of of how you do this. And how you lead worship and how you get a congregation involved. And I've been I've been doing it now for I think eight eight years, eight, ten years, something like that. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my soul, this cornerstone. You made a really good
2: point about getting a congregation involved. Mm-hmm. Church music throughout the ages, there's everything from a men's choir with Boy Sopranos behind the screen in the nave Mm -hmm. from some of the very old traditional churches, and then there's rock bands, Mm -hmm. and then there's everything in between. So at Centerpoint Church, what is your approach and how do you try and connect with the congregation, the people who come to worship?
3: My philosophy, I love to just have music that is, is really big and kind of energetic and gets people like wide awake and like, Hey, we're here at church and we're here to worship. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the point of music. And so I, I usually try to start off and just get people excited about who God is and what he's doing. And then I kind of try to fade it back and say, okay, now let's, let's be reflective. Let's, let's think about who God is and what he's done in our lives. And let's, let's kind of just have that moment where we can just kind of ponder, and be real with God and maybe just kind of be in the moment and just be reverent with what he's doing then forth in glorious day up from the grave he wore.
2: When you're choosing songs, and this is not just for the congregation mm-hmm. to listen to what you or the band and the singers are doing, yeah, it's so they can sing along too mm-hmm. and be involved in the worship. Mm-hmm. So you must have this battle of, of, hey, here's something new we could learn or mm-hmm. let's do some old favorites that we love to do. How do you balance that?
3: Sometimes it's really just, you know what, I really like this song, it's got a really good message and it's got a good feel, let's throw it in there. And then other times I'll look at the sermon, I'll look at kind of the where we're going and I'm like, alright God, what, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to play? And it's really awesome seeing God use stuff that I'm just like, you know, I, I, sometimes I feel like I just threw a set together like, you know, these songs are great. And, you know, I had some old hymns and I had some new songs and, and then somebody will come up to me and say, you know what, the whole songs that you chose just spoke to me. And it was God that was able to use that and open my heart and then prepare me for the message and things like that. So I, I try to be, I don't think I'm answering your question yet, but I try to be open to what the message is and also just kind of get everybody involved. You know, not everybody worships the same way some people like hymns some people like acoustic songs some people like big songs some people like really quiet songs so I try to to get everybody involved because it's not just about my music taste it's it's about bringing people closer to God so I try to kind of include everybody and, and get everybody toward at least one song a service somebody would be like yeah I, I, I like that that was good
2: I'm going to ask you a question that maybe has no answer. Sure. It's just what you think about. But what is it about music when we're worshiping? What is it that makes it do what it does and connect us
3: like it does? (sighs) There is an answer to that. And it's a very, it's a beautiful thing of what music can do. I think it can reach people. It's like a conversation with the heart, I guess. I've heard a sermon or I've heard, you know, people talk. And somebody could sing the same thing. And it's just so poetic and it's so beautiful that it touches you in a different way. And I think music with with the emotions that you can create with instruments, with with drums or with strings or anything like that, it's not just information for your head, it's information for your heart. And it kind of ties everything together. And and that's just why I love music. Till he returns or calls me home Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Here in the power of Christ, we stand. Amen!
2: Is there something you feel a nudging to do, but you're resisting? Could it be something you were meant to do? Have you seen the benefits of simply showing up consistently in a relationship for yourself? for God. We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Dr. Andrew Reed received advanced degrees from Oxford and Cambridge Universities and a PhD from Arizona State. He teaches comparative religion courses in church history. He's the faculty advisor for the BYU Interfaith Club. He's also a founding participant in the Jewish Latter-day Saint Academic Dialogue. After a long journey as a student, Cole Wissinger is more excited than he's ever been for anything before in his life to be graduating in statistics. Angela Hubbard is a wife and mother of five kids who are the apple of her eye. She is an accountant. Whitney Snow is majoring in speech therapy, a student producer with The Appleseed on BYU Radio. She loves podcasts, reading, hiking, camping, and storytelling.
4: You know, I think we probably all have felt something, you know, we get into situations where for whatever reason, we're different than the people around us. And, you know, for me, graduate school was that experience where people looked at me and said, you can't actually believe the stuff you believe in, right? And I said, well, I, I kind of can. But reconciling that notion of somebody is a firm believer in, in religion or a believer in God, sometimes that, you know, in a, in, the, in the academic setting, that gets complicated because they want you to be able to prove everything and show everything. And, and, and know everything rather than say, I believe something. And I, I think in some ways that's, you know, in a very different context maybe, that's being a Martian in, in, a, in a specific context where people don't expect a discussion about God. Uh, and so sometimes we feel that. And I, I certainly felt that living in England where people just, again, didn't know a lot about my own faith, but, but certainly expected a very kind of secular worldview. And that sometimes wasn't always there. And having to kind of navigate between those two points was difficult.
1: I feel we all kind of have that Martian deer in headlights type of feel that, hey, you know, we're navigating our lives and we're just trying to find common ground with everybody and to fit in. And where do I fit into this picture, whether it's with academia or whether it's with religion or just within our own families and the different perspectives and different things. We have to find that purpose that he talked about with God in our lives. We may be in a foreign land, we may be in our home, but we have to find that common thread that he talked about in the tapestry.
5: I think that's a lot of what Scott was talking about when he's talking about what does a church group essentially do for a community, talking about how it's not just a relationship between you and Jesus, but how it's like a horizontal thing about how we're all here to connect to one another. Um, And I think something that I thought about a lot when I was listening to his interview was just that kind of no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, we're all kind of looking for that prescribed plan that we think is there in a lot of ways. And one of my best friends when I was growing up, her name was Allie, I remember, Going over to her house and having dinner with her family, and just as I got to know her and her parents better, they didn't go to the same church I went to, but realizing that her parents had similar expectations to my own parents um, and having that experience of like, oh, we're all just trying to be, you know, the best we can be. We're all just trying to become better and better ourselves and kind of like find peace and purpose in life.
6: Yeah. And so when, when you find yourself alone, right, when you find yourself isolated and becoming the other, becoming the the Martian, as we're talking about here and as Scott brought up, he also brought up keep showing up. Right. That came up multiple times during okay, his interview. Yes. And that that's the solution that worked for me when I was when I was in that crowd, when I was at college, I was the only one that needed to wake up on a Sunday morning at all. Just that solution of, you know, no matter what I was doing for six days of the week, if I could figure out a way to wake up on a Sunday morning and show up mm-hmm. to church, that could at least keep me some kind of grounded. And and I really – I loved him bringing that up because when you're all alone, anywhere you can find that community, show up to it. And mm-hmm. that's – I did that definitely.
5: But that's like such an interesting experience with religion in general is that sometimes there isn't a direct and clear – answer to the thing that we're searching for but instead it's just the idea of yeah just keep showing up if you're doing the right thing keep moving forward with it um, like I thought that was really interesting when Scott talked about his experience at the Naval Academy and feeling like his life was empty and had no purpose and then he prays and he doesn't necessarily receive like some big answer from God coming down from the clouds like, Scott, this is the plan for you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But instead, what he receives is just an overwhelming sense of purpose, like in the most ambiguous way possible. Um, And I think that's just how it works sometimes.
4: No, it absolutely works that way. And, you know, I I think about my own life. I started out as an undergraduate student having no clue what I was going to do in my life. But was quite clear I was not going to do exactly what I'm doing now. Well, that sounds uh, familiar. That's
6: where we heard that story. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, th- I thought he brought up a couple of points where, where pastor Scott said, you know, sometimes we fight against that, which we are supposed to be doing. And in my own experience, I definitely have felt that when I met my wife, I told her I was going to be a dentist. And, nice. you know, <laughs> I think that may have been some of the draw. There was potential for financial Stability. enjoyment there, right. Or something. But, uh, you know, As I went through my undergraduate career, I started learning things about myself. I was in a a professor's office and he said, well, have you thought about graduate school in history? And I said, absolutely not. (laughs) I said, what's the point of that? And he said, well, I think you might like it. Uh, And that was while I was studying for the LSAT. I was preparing to go to law school. I was preparing to go to dental school, do something, right, that would be financially gainful. but. Over time, I, I got my head around the idea that maybe I should try out a graduate program in history just for one year, see what if I like it. If I don't like it, I can move on. But very quickly, what I learned was that it was exactly what I wanted to do. And from there, then it was another step and another step and another step down the road. At no point did I have a clear-cut path for what I was going to be doing in my life. But by just showing up sometimes, by just taking the opportunity as it presents itself, mm-hmm. doors open. And I think for... For Scott, that's something he was saying, right? He didn't know why he was going to the Naval Academy. He wasn't sure what the plan was. He knew that was a goal his parents had for him. But taking that step and then all of a sudden he learned something very different than what he had probably anticipated in playing football and, and being in a, in a service academy, all of a sudden enters into a very different path. And sometimes that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. We want a clear purpose. And we know we have a purpose. But sometimes we have to walk through the steps of opening the various doors to see which one – Leads us somewhere we want to go or somewhere that we're supposed to go. That's the adventure of life, I think. And, and, and maybe that's what religious folks all over the world are doing is trying to navigate those various doors and see which ones open and which ones lead to a place that's better than where they're at now.
5: And it's cool to see that he has ended up exactly where he needed to be literally with kind of his whole background i thought it really stuck out when he was talking about being a high school administrator and a football coach and then he can make that direct connection between you know i loved talking i loved shepherding and i know i've i've felt that way just that connection between knowing you know that what you're on the right path
1: i liked what andy said about you know opening those doors and not knowing sometimes we you know we're on the road we we graduated from college, and then we're, we're humming, we're good, and something happens in our life, and it's like, whoa, wait a minute. This is not where I want to be. He talked about, like, the surrendering. He didn't know, but he knew where he was going is not – he felt it. It wasn't where he was supposed to be. He didn't feel comfortable. He didn't have the overwhelming joy. A couple – Years ago, my my husband, he's got a graduate degree, and he said, "I, I'm gonna go back to school." And I was like, like what? <laughs> "Okay." Um, I was at home at the time, and so it was like, oh, "Okay, how are we gonna make this happen? We got it. this. Is what you feel? We need. I need to support you, and we need to do this together." And So then he went back to school, and then it was like, you know, this is not what I'm supposed to do. Then it was like, okay, well, we'll just open another door, and we'll just go. But being liquid and being um, humble enough to find those paths is kind of what he was saying. He he had that moment in the Naval Academy where he was like, okay, this is not what I'm supposed to do. And then when he found it, he—you have— true joy and happiness and we're all looking for that
6: his moment of surrender is not that's something that i have heard before and no matter what religion you go across is that eventually you get to that point where you realize that you are there and that you need god and i am personally terrified of having that come up i'm still young i have not had to i've not been backed up against the wall like that yet in my life but i know it's probably gonna come there eventually. Like I, it's something that the religious folks don't really get around. So I've been able to sustain my religion by showing up and by doing the things that that I'm pretty sure that I have to do. But but yeah, every time I hear a story like the one that he shared, I get a chill up my spine because I know it's coming. I, I know it's around the corner eventually. Mm-hmm. Cole, well,
1: it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, brace
4: yourself. But uh, really, as, as Cole brought that up, I, I I think there's something really valuable about. This notion that somehow in the moment of surrender, we find our – some people call it duty or a dharma or something. you know uh, I have Hindu friends who talk about needing to find their duty in life or their responsibility, the thing they're supposed to do. Christians, right? The, the, the Bible often talks about this idea that we need to surrender ourselves. Those moments are scary. those In my own life, I've thought those moments are dark sometimes. Those moments are uh, moments where we have no idea where we're headed. And as Scott was talking about these, it was very clear that for him, there's no point at which you look down at the map and it's clearly drawn the, 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 the destination. That's the scary part about surrendering sometimes is you place the emphasis somewhere else and you say, it's, it's not about me. It's about somebody else or something else. It's about my children. It's about my family. It's about my church. It's about whatever it is. And you let that path play out. You know, as somebody who's raising children right now, that's a that can be a scary place because you look at them and you say, "I want you to go do whatever it is you're supposed to do," but I have no idea what that is. And you know, my kids look back at me and go, "Well, aren't you supposed to tell me?" Yeah. At some point, you have to let them open the doors themselves, and mm-hmm. it's well, a we, wild trip.
5: We look at God and we do the same thing. Mm-hmm. We say, "Isn't that your whole purpose? Is to lead me, guide me through this life?" and In reality, I think sometimes it's a little more complicated than we want it to be. And I can really connect with, I I love what you were just saying about kind of finding your your purpose, your destiny in a lot of ways. And I had the experience now multiple times during my college career where I felt like I was supposed to be going one direction with my major. So I started as a finance major and just realized that I was feeling really overwhelmed and yet at the same time uninterested in what I was studying. As I shopped around for a new major, I came to the conclusion that what I really wanted to do with my life was something where I could help people and found myself in the major I'm in now, which is speech therapy. And I really connect with Scott's desire to serve, as he talks about in his interview, um, just because for me, that's one of the most beautiful experiences this life has to offer is the opportunity to help other people, um, become better, whether that's, you know, helping them be able to speak or helping somebody come overcome an emotional issue or just being a friend in any way that you choose to serve someone else. Uh,
4: one of the things that Scott McKinney brought up was this idea that in their home, they were goal oriented, uh, and they were centered on really three themes, uh, faith, family, and football. And, you know, I think, Part of what he talked about was he needed to attend the service academy and they were going to play college football. And he tried that out. And in that process, he became frustrated by it just because of the way that that goes. Sometimes he mentioned he was injured and that's what sort of brought him to his point of surrender. And at that point, he has to be his own self. And that's the, the scary transition sometimes is we're growing up. We're, we're taking whatever it is our parents gave us and taught us and whatever we may have felt uh, in our own religious life up to that point. And then all of a sudden we become responsible mm-hmm. for that path and that journey. And, and, you know, I, I look at my own experiences and when I told my parents I was going to graduate school, I, there was, I think there was a marked sort of question mark, maybe not disappointment, but definitely a question mark. as I sat across the table and said, I think I'm going to graduate school. They knew I'd been studying for the LSAT and had talked about dental school and other things. And all of a sudden they realized, "Oh, this thing's not ending anytime soon. And, um, <laughs> Very quickly in graduate school, I found myself sitting there in a room at Westminster Abbey of all places with the chief rabbi of of Britain, uh, the archbishop of Canterbury and the prince of Jordan with 10 other people. And I had no reason to be there except that I knew somebody. And instantly in that meeting, I I realized that what they were talking about, this idea of working with people of other faiths and creating dialogue with, with other religions, that's what I wanted to do. And then I had to figure out how to do it. But it was because that door opened somehow and and my parents, I think, are okay with what I'm doing now, I think, but we'll find out, I guess, in the end. But, you know, parents give us purpose and at some point we have to turn that purpose into a pattern or a life for ourselves. And that's the dangerous part of parenting, I suppose, is <laughs> you turn the keys over at some point.
6: And his parents' purpose came from a very regimented place. Um, every time I hear about military brats, I become more and more grateful. And I call my parents afterwards thanking them that they were so loosey goosey with the raising of me. Um, I would not have done well in a family where you get up at this time and you have dinner at this time and then you go to bed at this time. Um, My family was, my dad worked three jobs. Uh, My mom's blind and stayed at home trying to raise me. And when we got around to something, we did it. Um, You know, if if we were eating dinner at midnight because my dad had a late shift at work, then that's what we were doing. And that's, what I needed to be able to grow up. And that's what I needed to develop my own goals um, and my own relationships uh, with God and with a higher purpose or however that comes about. I needed to, I have always been the way that I needed to figure that out on my own. And I'm grateful every day for parents that kind of let me do it. Mm
5: -hmm. I think that kind kind of transitions into this idea. I love when he said, when he talked about how When he was younger, ADD wasn't a thing yet. And sometimes it can be really hard to pray with ADD, but it speaks to this idea that like faith and life in general is something that you go at your own pace, no matter how structured it may seem that we want it to be. So like for me, for example, there was a period in my life where for a good year, I was so ill that I wasn't able to go to church. And I always felt so guilty about it because what I grew up in, it was like such a thing, like you you had to be at church, like attendance taken, right? And I always felt so guilty. But I remember thinking that like, God knows my heart. He knows that I want to be there. You know, we're going to look back on this year. It's not going to be the end of the world. Um, He's going to understand. And so, yeah, I connected with that a lot.
4: You know Something that came out in Scott's discussion about this void or this this space that we're trying to fill somehow is that as you look at religious people all over the world, they are all pursuing some kind of relationship with deity. No matter which religion they're coming from, there is something out there they're seeking, and they do it through rituals, and they do it through prayer, and they do it through study of sacred text. And in that process, I think we all come to a point where we have to really ask ourselves, "What do I know? And what do I believe? Or what do I feel?" Uh, and I think for Scott, uh, his own tradition probably allows for that point where you say, "I don't know anything." That's that's where I'm surrendering, and I don't know what I'm doing, or I don't know what I don't know. For and, sure. And that's the point where you have to stop and say, "Okay, someone else has to." Has to, has to drive this car for a minute while I get my head around what's going on. Mm-hmm. And you let that happen. And that's the scary thing. And I think that's, you know, as I visit with people all over the world in my own work, mm-hmm. there is a common pursuit of good. And we try and find it in so many different ways. And eventually, I think we all get our head around it. We get our head around it a little bit. But he talks about this idea that it has to go from the head to the heart. And that I think is the process he's looking... He was talking about in that moment of surrender and then seeking to fill that vacuum is at some point we have to feel it. And for religious people all over the world, we feel it mm-hmm. in different ways but and, and through different means. But I think we all feel something common. Mm-hmm. And that's what drives us to keep pursuing and seeking.
5: Or I think about my own experience and the word I would use is trust in it. Um, I think the moment for me that I chose to trust that there was a God and that he had a plan was really big because I hadn't had many groundbreaking
1: feelings
5: up until that point.
1: I think the heart is, when he uses the heart to fill that void, that vacuum we have, and it's kind of like that heart. Our heart keeps us moving. Our heart is, is a tremendous muscle in our bodies, and we feel so much more compassion for our brothers and sisters. We're all here for the good, and we need to fill that void in our hearts so we have that compassion and that love that will transcend among all people and envelop everybody. And so much good can be done and can reach across borders and other things if there's love involved. Um, When
5: I was living in New York, we lived on the corner of Parsons Boulevard and Jamaica Avenue out in Queens. And there was this evangelical soup kitchen that we would go serve at. And there was this guy named Keith who had worked there for almost 40 years. And I was like, Keith, what is this about this place? Is it because you remember? Do you do you work here? And he was just like, no, I just love helping the people. I just love serving. And so that's what I, I think of him.
1: I thought of him as you were saying that about how it's love is really a big motivator. Mm -hmm. It's that community that you feel, that family. He mentioned that family. We all are God's family. And that love that he feels our the void that he feels in our hearts, it it makes it so there isn't those spaces and we all can treat each other the way he would like us to treat each other.
6: Yeah, and so Scott's a pastor, right? He talked a lot about how he relates this to his flock personally. But... But God's flock is everyone. And so as we reach across these borders, as we have relationships with other religions and and folks of other religion, we extend these same – hopefully, right? We extend these same loving, really fulfilling relationships and assistance and service things to everyone. And everything everything that he says just applies so much to every one of God's children. And it's beautiful when it's – when you see it,
5: and for being a pastor, I feel like his experience is super relatable. Yeah, like we've all kind of talked about, like just wanting that opportunity to progress and help other people, and like he's not by the book, Superman of the cloth. Like he's just a guy who's running the church <laughs> and doing good things while he's doing it.
4: As Whitney was talking there, one of the things that I, I think really stands out to me in, in what uh, Pastor Scott was mentioning is, is this idea of community that, that we've talked a little bit about. And for me, the thing I notice when I go out into other communities you know, outside of my own is that community fills the same void for every person. In a, in a kind of unique way right so I go to my particular congregation and I feel things and I have friends there and people who want to know how I'm doing and and you know are concerned about my children and what they're doing and 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 their well-being and then I go out to a Jewish synagogue and there are people there who want to know how they're doing and how their children are doing and how people are are, are you know recovering from some illness and In that, I find that this notion that Scott talked about, which was love, is why communities matter. These congregations of faith, as he called them, right? They matter for us because it's there that we belong to something. Now, I I think that he's, he's also quite wise to recognize that there's a need for diversity in those communities and religious congregations of different stripes add to that diversity. And I think that enriches a community because it allows for us to see other perspectives. In my own work, as I travel, I'm leaving for Los Angeles in the morning to go visit um, with uh, rabbis and scholars. And one of the things that I love about that interaction, we've been doing it for three years, is that I learn something from them every single time I'm there about their own experience. And it enriches my, then I could take it back to my own community and say, here's something I've learned from someone else and their experience. And I love that aspect of it.
2: That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Andy, Cole, Angela, and Whitney, also worship leader Brenton Laidler, and especially to Pastor Scott McKinney for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation. We welcome your thoughts and ideas. Email us at ingoodfaith@byu.edu. at byu.edu. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. All music used by permission. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Our associate producers are Christine Knockleby and Marcus Smith. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join us again soon, right here, in good faith.